Good morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. It's good to be with you this Sunday morning on Facebook and YouTube. Today we're going to continue our Why Church series. This is our teaching series where we're asking the big question, why would anybody in this day and age choose to be part of a church, especially when so many people seem to be walking away from traditional institutions of all kinds, but especially religious institutions. We live in a particularly polarized world right now as we are only a few days at this point away from the next national election, an extremely contentious national election. And in the midst of all of that, there is this, of course, religious uh, involvement, this sort of religious narrative that runs through this election in particular. So we know that this election has really divided people who are part of the same family. It's divided people who are part of the same faith and oftentimes people who are part of the same church. And so in the midst of all that division, in the midst of all that chaos, in the midst of a time when the church seems to be failing to reflect the character of Christ, how is it that we can ask people to seriously make the choice for church in their lives? That's what we're talking about in this series. We're going to jump back into it today by looking at some passages from Matthew. And uh, before we do, I just want to invite you, as always, to join with me in a word of prayer as we center ourselves before we read these words together. Would you just join me? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather. And as we come together this morning across social media and sing together and pray together and read these words of Scripture together, as we utter the Lord's prayer together and share communion together. We ask that you would unify us around some common concepts of what it means to reflect your character, what it means to reflect your nature. We pray first and foremost that you would form us into people who are able to reflect your love and your hope and your kindness and your compassion. We pray that as we do that, that People who are in need of more love and hope and kindness and compassion in their lives would find their way to a community where they can receive it. Whether that's Oceanside Sanctuary or some other community of faith that is reflecting your goodness and your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today as I was reflecting on our passage, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 28 today, and then also a little bit from Matthew chapter 5. And as I was reading from Matthew 28, I was reminded of this concept of discipleship. Discipleship is one of those ideas that's really at the heart of most expressions of Christianity today. In fact, discipleship is called the Great Commission. We're going to read the passage today that's called the Great Commission. And as I was thinking about that and reflecting on that, I was reminded of a time several years ago when I wasn't working for the church. I was actually working for a local nonprofit. And sometimes what I would do when I was working for that organization is I, if I needed to get out of the office in order to be really productive, I would go to a local cafe. I'd take my laptop and I'd sit there at the cafe 
and I would, uh, you know, really focus on whatever it was that I was supposed to be doing uh, and, and be free from the distractions that sometimes happen at the office. And one time in particular, when I went to one of my favorite little local cafes uh, near the office, I remember sitting there working away and at a table next to me, there were three or four people having a conversation. And I'll bet you've had a very similar experience. And as they were talking, my ears sort of perked up because I was hearing some familiar words and phrases. And as I sort of rudely eavesdropped on this group of people at the table next to me, I realized that there was a kind of Bible study going on at the table next to me. And so, I, like I said, my ears sort of perked up and I listened in and started to drift away from my work on my laptop and started to overhear their conversation. And I realized it wasn't really a Bible study. What was going on is that there was a group of people and one of them was clearly the leader. And this man who was the leader was sort of very directively walking the other people through a series of questions. And these questions were obviously framed to elicit a very particular kind of response. And they were going through a kind of workbook together. And I realized that what was happening over here at this table next to me is something that I have seen and heard and even participated in many times in my life as a Christian. It was a discipleship group. It's a group of people who come together for the purpose of being discipled in their faith. And what was happening in this group, of course, is that as they were going through this workbook and as the leader was asking these sort of pre-formulated questions, he was expecting a set of pre-formulated answers to those questions. And it was obvious from listening in that the uh, other folks in that group were just learning the answers to these questions. And so the leader was very gently, very kindly reinforcing the right words, the right phrases, and the right ideas to these people that were meeting with him. And it occurred to me for the first time, because like I said, I, I've seen these groups many, many times and have even participated in these kinds of groups. I was very much early in my Christianity discipled in this way, and I was trained to disciple people in this way. But it occurred to me for the first time, probably because I had recently graduated from seminary, that the checklist of beliefs, the checklist of carefully crafted answers, the checklist of doctrines that this group of people were being reinforced with was a set of beliefs that are relatively new in the history of Christianity. Without exception, every single one of the items on this checklist that this group of people were being told they had to believe in order to be good, faithful, honest Christians, every single item on the checklist represented a kind of creed or a kind of doctrine or a kind of belief that in its particular form really had only existed for the last two to three hundred years. Now, I don't say that because I think those answers were wrong. I don't say it because I think that those beliefs are wrong. Some of those beliefs may very well be right. I only say it to point out that each of those beliefs have really only been believed by a relatively narrow group of Christians for the past 2,000 years, right? Have only been believed by a relative minority of Christians as they've existed for the past 2,000 years, and have only really been believed for the past couple hundred years out of the overall history of Christianity for the past 2,000 years. In other words, 
There are different answers to each of those questions that have been shared and believed and followed very deeply and sincerely by the great majority of Christians that have ever walked the earth. And it occurred to me for the first time that what was happening at the table next to me wasn't so much a process of discipleship as Jesus understood discipleship. It really was a process of indoctrination. That the folks at that table were being indoctrinated into a very narrow set of beliefs that were relatively new and shared by a relative minority of people. Now, if you would turn with me just to Matthew, real quick, to Matthew chapter 28, I want to read to you the, the passage that gives us sort of the instructions that the church has historically taken to be Christ's instructions for us to disciple people. It's Matthew chapter 28. It's a very familiar passage. If you've been around the church for a little while, I'm sure you've heard it before. It starts in verse 16 and goes through to verse 20, and here's what it says. This is at the end of Jesus's ministry, of course. It's after his death and resurrection. It's right before he leaves the disciples and scripture depicts him as ascending into heaven. And here's what he says. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this passage is the Great Commission. It is the commandment that Jesus gives to his disciples and it's the commandment that Christians throughout the past two millennia have taken to be sort of our marching orders, the things that Jesus directly told us to go and do in the world. And I've taught on this passage fairly recently, so we don't have time for me to analyze this passage in detail right now. But just suffice it to say that I've pointed out before that when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Right? That Jesus is saying that we ought to, as believers, teach other people something. That's exactly what disciple means. Right? Disciple simply means a student or a learner. Right? Jesus had a group of disciples who followed him. And that was very common in the ancient Near Eastern uh, region uh, around Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. Uh, and their rabbis, their religious leaders, were in the habit of gathering students or learners, disciples who would follow them every single day in the way that they lived, and they would watch them, and they would listen, they would eat with them, and they would participate with them and serve them and ask them questions and engage in dialogue around who God was and what God wanted, right? In other words, they were intense, hardcore learners about the Jewish way of knowing God. And of course, also here where it says, not just go out into uh, all the nations, that is, go beyond the bounds of Israel and make learners or students, but then Jesus goes on to say, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I've told you in the past, of course, that I don't think that what Jesus is teaching people to do there is to take folks and actually dunk them underwater, right? And then to say over them, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I, I think that Jesus is saying something different. 
Because baptizing, of course, has this symbol of being washed in water. It's a symbol that the ancient Near Eastern Jews practiced regularly. But Jesus takes that symbol to represent a higher spiritual reality. That is the idea that his learners, his students, by engaging with him and by following him and listening to his teachings and listening to his ways and eating with him and serving with him, all that stuff I mentioned before, by doing that, they are being immersed, not in water, but they're being immersed into the reality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the reality of the God that pervades all of reality. They're being immersed into the actual presence of the Spirit of God that is available and at hand around us at all times. And so I, I think that's the best way that we understand this notion of baptizing, that Jesus didn't just tell us to perform this ritual that we still perform 2,000 years later. That ritual is supposed to symbolize a particular way of teaching, a particular way of learning. And that way of learning is to immerse people in the present reality of God. Now, instead of doing that, instead of following Jesus' great commission in that way, the church is unfortunately notorious for engaging in a different kind of discipleship. And I'm sure, of course, you know this, that the history of Christianity is essentially the history of the church getting political power, getting the power of the state, that is, the power of the sword around the 4th century. And from that point forward, from the 4th century on, the church's version of making disciples is essentially to go all into the world with an army and conquer people and conquest people and convert people even at the tip of a sword in order to grow the church, in order to grow the church's power, in order to grow the church's money. And unfortunately, of course, even now when we use the word discipleship, sometimes, especially for those who are outside the church or especially for those who have been hurt by the church, the word discipleship carries those same connotations. That what's happening is, is not a kind of immersion into an amazing reality that resources you for a life of goodness and a life of righteousness, a life, a life of peace and joy and love, but instead a life that involves being dominated, being conquered, a life that involves being told what you have to believe and who you have to be with at all times. And so unfortunately, discipleship often has picked up that baggage. Nowadays, we don't necessarily see churches, especially in the United States of America, accompanying an army and converting people at the tip of a sword. But what we do see is churches employing discipleship tactics that don't look so much like teaching, they look more like, I said, indoctrination. We see churches forcing very particular, uh, sometimes very new and very esoteric beliefs on their people and telling those people that if they don't believe those things, then they are pushed out or shunned or excluded from the community. And so the church has now gained a kind of reputation for, for using a, a kind of coercion or a kind of force or a kind of dominance to make sure that people toe the party line when it comes to beliefs 
and doctrines and behaviors. And so, of course, people have grown to mistrust the church. Recently, of course, I had one of these uh, learning lab panel discussions uh, that I'm doing right now to supplement this teaching series. If you go to OceansideSanctuary.org and you click on the link that says uh, Inspiring, you'll see a page called Learning Lab. And on the Learning Lab page, you'll see that occasionally we have these panel discussions. They're video discussions between myself and other leaders uh, from around the country, church leaders and, uh, and people outside the church who uh, have uh, ministries of different kinds. And I gather these people in these conversations that usually last about an hour and 15 minutes. And we talk about the church, we talk about God, we talk about Christ, we talk about all the things that are relevant to what we're doing here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. And I try to ask questions that provoke a lot of conversation. And last week, we had a quest uh, conversation around the question, uh, what is the future of tradition? And in this conversation about the future of tradition, I just pointed out to my, my fellow panelists that trust in religious institutions is at an all-time low in the United States. Now, overwhelmingly, the majority of people in the United States now don't trust religious institutions. Trust in religious institutions right now is down around 40 41% which, like I said, is at an all-time low in the history of the United States. And I was asking my fellow panelists, why do you think it is that people outside the church and even people inside the church don't trust the church as much as they used to? One of the panelists is a friend of mine named Shonda Josh. Shonda is an amazing leader. She's a fellow member of the Disciples of Christ, which is our denomination here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. Shonda runs an organization called the Oakland Peace Center. And at the Oakland Peace Center, Shonda engages with her community to bring about uh, just practices in the community that lead to peace. And she had something I thought really insightful to say in this conversation. Uh, so talking again about the loss of trust for the church, here's what Shonda had to say. She said, and I quote, in the book Emergent Strategy, Adrian Marie Brown talks about how if you trust people, they become trustworthy. And trust is a two-way street, and our institutions have functioned with contempt for us. Our institutions have functioned with contempt for us. I thought that was such a powerful insight because it occurred to me as I was thinking through today's teaching on discipleship, it occurred to me that we have in the church approached discipleship in the same way. We don't trust the people that we're discipling to think the right thoughts and believe the right ideas. We don't trust the people in the church to encounter God in ways that will lead them towards a good relationship with God and produce good fruit in their lives. So instead, we engage in a kind of relationship of dominance with the people who enter into the church. And we do it in all kinds of fun and in exciting and enticing ways, we, we take those prepackaged beliefs and we turn them into uh, little commodities that sound fun and interesting and exciting, and then we feed it to them in ways that make it clear that they really don't have a choice to think or believe anything else. And essentially what we're doing is we are telling them that we don't really have any respect for them or their ability to learn from Christ. And it occurred to me that when Shonda shared that, that if our way of teaching people, if our way 
of helping people to become students of Jesus is simply about converting them or conquering them, then we're not really teaching them. We're just showing them that we have contempt for them. And if we have been showing people by the way that we teach and engage that we really have contempt for them, then it should come as no surprise to us that people are increasingly rejecting church and walking away from church as an institution. I want to flip over now uh, just very briefly to Matthew chapter 5. I want to show you Jesus's way of teaching. Because when we hear that great commission passage from Matthew 28, go out into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to do everything I have uh, commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, when we hear that passage, we hear that word discipleship, I think we often sort of default to this notion that discipleship is what I just said. Sort of us sort of spoon-feeding people a particular way of thinking and believing. But Jesus, I think, did it very differently. So if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, I want to point out just a couple of brief passages to you to illustrate what Jesus taught and how he taught. Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 21, we're just going to jump ahead there to verse 21. This is a very characteristic way that Jesus taught in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.21 says this, You have heard that it was said in those ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, then you will be liable to the hell of fire. Meaning, Jesus is saying, essentially, you know, you have heard it said from Moses this, but I say to you that. You have heard it said from Moses that if you murder somebody, that is worthy of judgment. And I say to you that if you are simply angry with somebody or if you express contempt for somebody, then that is worthy of judgment. Now, pause there because I, I'm not here today to unpack that passage. I just want to show you sort of Jesus's way of teaching. Skip ahead to verse 27. Similarly, Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, verse 33, again, you have heard it said that of those in ancient times that you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, each of these passages would take a lot of unpacking to explain, but that's not really my purpose here today. What I want you to see here is that what Jesus does when he teaches is he engages in this kind of thesis-antithesis construction. Right? The thesis is, you have heard it said this. And then the antithesis is, but I say that. Now, this sort of construction, this way of teaching, is not an argument, right? Jesus is not disagreeing with Moses. And we know Jesus isn't disagreeing with Moses, because earlier in chapter 5, he begins his teaching by saying, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. Well, if Jesus isn't disagreeing with Moses, if he isn't teaching something totally different, what's he doing? Well, 
what he's doing is he's trying to engage his audience. He's trying to engage his students, his followers, in a kind of dialogue with Moses and with himself. Because you see, the classic thesis antithesis construction also comes with a third part. It comes with a synthesis. And so when Jesus gives them the thesis, this is what Moses said, and then he gives them the antithesis, this is what I say, he is very naturally leaving that third part of the dialogue open for his hearers, for his listeners to enter in with what they think and what they say. This is a, a very classic way of teaching in the ancient Near East. It's a very rabbinical way of teaching students. You take a passage or an argument or an idea and you present it, and then you present another idea or another argument, and in doing so, you invite the student, you invite the hearer to enter into that same great dialogue, that same tradition of back and forth exchange, that same sort of reciprocity of wrestling with who God is and what God is all about. That's how Jesus teaches. He doesn't give his disciples the answers that they have to believe verbatim. Instead, he is throwing out there a new perspective on these old ideas, and he's inviting his learners, he's inviting his disciples to enter into that great dialogue with him. It occurs to me that that way of teaching, where you engage with the text, and then you offer your perspective, and then you leave open space for those who are in the room to also offer their perspective and engage with a dialogue about it. That approach to teaching, that approach to learning, far from being conquering, far from being a kind of uh, attempt to dominate your students, is actually a deeply respectful, uh, deeply reciprocal way of engaging with them. And that is exactly how Jesus does this. Jesus engages with his followers in a deeply respectful, deeply open, and sort of radically hospitable way. He invites them to come alongside him to explore this, this mystery, this reality of God's presence in their midst. And of course, that makes perfect sense because it would, it would be crazy for Jesus to engage in the kind of dominating, conquering, sort of converting narrative that we often think of when we hear, hear the word discipleship. That would make no sense for Jesus because what Jesus is teaching in these pages is very much the opposite of that. Jesus isn't teaching that to be a Christian means that you have to go out and dominate the world. He isn't teaching that to be a follower of his means that you have to conquer the world, Jesus in these passages is teaching his students how to let go of the desire to dominate, how to let go of the desire to exact revenge. He's teaching them to let go of anger and contempt and violence as a way of solving problems. He's teaching them to let go of, of the need to take out revenge for the, the harms that have been brought upon them. He's teaching them to forgive instead, and he's teaching them to be people who are willing to be forgiven. He's teaching them to let go of fear and anxiety and let go of the greed that becomes our way of finding security and the falsehood of wealth. 
He's teaching them all those things. In other words, Jesus is teaching them a radically loving way to live. And that's, of course, exactly what we hear in some of the great passages that sort of summarize who Jesus was. In John chapter 13, verse 35, you've heard this passage before. Jesus says, people will know you, that is, his disciples, his students, people will know you are my students by your love for each other. In other words, people who are genuine disciples of Jesus, people who are genuine followers of Jesus, ought to exude so much love that people would look at us and say, well, they must be followers of Jesus because they so clearly love each other and love others in this world. Just two chapters later in John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus gives not the great commission, but what we now know of as the great commandment. He says, this is my commandment, that you love each other just as I have loved you. And that is the content of Jesus's teaching. That's what it means to be his disciple. That's what it means to be his student. It doesn't mean to have all of the right answers. It means that you are a person of love and kindness and generosity and goodness and peace. And there is nothing that our world needs right now more than people who know how to love. Just look around you. Just look at your Facebook feed. Just listen to the conversations that are going on. Just turn on the news or watch a political debate. Or better yet, don't watch the political debate. Because I know that you already know that what our world needs more than anything are people who know how to love like Jesus loved. And that ultimately is what church ought to be. Church ought to be a place where people become students of love. Church ought to be a school of love, where people know how to pour themselves out for the good of others, to meet their needs, to bring them hope, and to connect them to the presence of God that is right there at hand in their midst. If we could do that, if we could be the kind of church that was a school of love, where you knew that if you came here, you could reliably learn how to love your enemy and love your neighbor and love your family and love your annoying uncle at the next Thanksgiving. If, if this were a place like that, then people would choose to be a part of church because it would be incredibly relevant and important to our world. I want to leave you with a couple of questions like I usually do for you to engage in the comments on Facebook or to talk to uh, your friends or your partners about at home. And those questions are this. Number one, how is it that you're learning to love today? How is it that you're gaining the skills necessary that teach you how to be somebody who can love like Christ? And then number two, I wonder who you're teaching to love in your life. You may not feel like you have all the answers. You may not feel like you totally know how to love others. But I really believe that for anybody who has turned their hearts towards God, they are learning how to love. They're gaining those skills. And I'm wondering, as you gain the skills that you need to learn how to love, who are you teaching to do that as well? Not in a dominating way, not in a conquering way, but again, in a deeply respectful and mutually loving way. Who are you offering those skills to? 
Thanks so much. That's all I have for you today. If you would just join with me in a word of prayer, we're going to ask God to go with us as we take our communion together today. God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather around your word and to gather around your invitation to become people who learn how to live and to love like you in our lives. We pray that you would fill us with a desire to love and that you would teach us how to practice that love each and every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, good morning, everybody. My name is CJ, and this morning we have a few announcements for you. If you are brand new within the last few months and you have stumbled across the online gatherings here at the Oceanside Sanctuary, we would love to know that you are out there and if you have any questions and where you're watching from. And you can jump on the OceansideSanctuary.org website and hit backslash contact, and that'll put you right in touch with the team and the pastoral staff. Number two, um, right after the service today, there is a Q&A with uh, Pastor Jason. You can ask him any questions you want, like, how do you get your hair so curly? Or how did you end up at the Oceanside Sanctuary? No questions are off the table. You're gonna see a link right at the bottom of the screen here, and you're gonna simply be able to plug that in, click on that, and it'll take you right to the Q&A immediately following uh, the service here today. We've got a great book club coming up for you, and it's entitled, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Still Listening. It's by Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth A. Silver. It's gonna be a great time to jump on Zoom together, have some great conversation. Um, this book's about two friends on opposite sides of the aisle who provide a practical guide to grace-filled political conversation. Imagine that. It also is gonna challenge the readers to put relationships before policy and understanding before argument. So, to get more information, go to the Oceanside Sanctuary website, backslash calendar, you can RSVP and get more information on that uh, book club coming up here real soon. And then Faith Votes, uh, the San Diego Organizing Project, one of our partners, is having a phone bank with all of the elections coming up and you can participate in that you can volunteer for that it's going to be on tuesday nights and saturday mornings on the zoom sdop will provide all the training you need um, and that will help during the voter information campaign oceansidesanctuary.org backslash calendar for more information with sdop so check that out if you're looking to help out in the next couple weeks with that and then finally, we'd love for you to partner with the Oceanside Sanctuary. It is a 501c3 and survives and impacts this community based on gifts from you. You can check that out, get more information from the staff and team about what exactly your gifts go to. They would love to answer those questions. You can find it on the oceansidesanctuary.org backslash give. Have a great week, continue to stay safe and healthy. Look forward to seeing you hopefully soon. See you later.